here's a cool opportunity. If you listened to episode 109, you met Amir Nathu, the founder of OutSchool. And lots of us know about OutSchool, especially after the pandemic. But who you might not know yet is the independent nonprofit partner to OutSchool, OutSchool.org. So what OutSchool.org does is to support the platform, which has 140,000 live virtual classes, but make sure that communities like the ones you care about have access and that together we can close what I've often referred to as the enrichment gap in programs across the U.S. So there's an application date coming up uh, and an information session. So OutSchool.org is seeking micro schools, homeschool co-ops, district or charter schools, and community organizations serving majority BIPOC and low-income learners and families. They'll provide community partners with training and support worth loads of money and a $10,000 grant to support program implementation in addition to free and discounted education resources. Outschool.org is seeking partners in states with direct-to-family funding like education savings accounts or other micro-grants to implement the Outbridge program, which helps families to better understand children's needs and interests and navigate what for them might be a pretty fractured educational experience in order to individualize education for their children. OutSchool's also looking for organizations to co-invest with ESSER, ESSER, Title I, and Title II funds for its proven tutoring program or to offer interest-based enrichment classes. For organizations without access to public funds, OutSchool.org can offer $500 per learner for a total of 350 learners across its community partner cohort. So again, that's $500 per learner. So to learn more, Here's where you're going to go, outschool.org slash community-partner-grant, outschool.org slash community-partner-grant. Attend an information session coming up on July 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and you can apply by August 1st at outschool.org. Info on everything I just described is available to you at outschool.org, and I hope you will let them know that no such thing podcast sent you. Let's get started. This episode is about museums and learning in museums, but more specifically, it's about some folks who are doing work to innovate in that space, not in the ways that we often think of innovation, but in ways that impact visitors' lives deeply. There's this book that's been sitting on my shelf that was handed to me in 2007 called What is Exhibition Design? And it was written by Jan Lorenz, Lee Skolnick, and Craig Berger. These are kind of giants in the exhibition design space. In this one section, it's titled, Who Do We Design For? I'll read you a little quote. Though it is difficult to accommodate, let alone please every type of individual, designers can at least consider the visitor profile and plan for traffic flow and modes of presentation accordingly. If the exhibition is one in which a family may wish to stick together, then content and interpretive techniques should be intermixed so that each age group will be engaged simultaneously with any given area. After all, if toddlers are bored and impatient, parents won't have the opportunity to absorb information at their own pace. Older children might fly by the text panels in search of greater stimulation, and so on and so on. Later in that section, we get to the following. Finally, we must stress the absolute imperative that designers employ universal design, in quotes, in all of their projects. Gone are the dark days when public venues could only be enjoyed by people with certain abilities. The concept of designing for the handicapped or disabled also in quotes, should also be relegated to the dust heap of history. People learn and interact in a myriad of ways suited to their physical and cognitive abilities. Universal design calls for us to provide equally enlightening and fulfilling experiences and opportunities for all. This includes recognizing that braille, adequate lighting, type size, and color contrast constitute good graphic design. It means providing closed captioning and infrared hearing assistance with audio. 
explanatory signage should be layered in such a way that visitors with varied levels of reading ability, as well as different levels of interest and familiarity with the subject, are all stimulated and informed. There can be no place which is off limits to wheelchair users or those with walkers or canes, but much more than following these and other simple and absolutely necessary guidelines, we must as designers think broadly and deeply about who our visitors are and how we can create fully engaging environments which communicate with them on multiple levels and as richly as possible. But if you're a museum employee in an exhibits or an education department, and not one of the elite design firms working with big budgets, you might ask, but how? So New York's Intrepid Air and Space Museum, along with partners at Access Smithsonian and National Trust for Historic Preservation, along with New York University's Ability Project, have set out to offer practical answers with a publication called Making History Accessible, Toolkit for Multisensory Interpretation. Two of its authors join me in this episode, Charlotte Martin and Lauren Race, to offer their insights and expertise. Stay tuned because, among other things, you're about to learn what a smell box is. Hi, I'm Lauren Race. I'm an accessibility designer, researcher, and educator. I work in both academia and industry. Uh, at the NYU Ability Project, where I serve, um, I research the design of accessible educational tools in both formal and informal learning environments. Hi, I'm Charlotte Martin. I'm the Director of Access Initiatives at the Intrepid Museum in New York City. And I've been working in museum education and accessibility for over 10 years. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Congratulations on the publication of the toolkit. I am super excited and I'm hoping we can just start with a description of the project. Um, how long did it take? Whose who's support enabled this work? And and um, yeah, let's, let's dive in and just get a sense of uh, the context. Uh, so this project has been coming together for a number of years now. Um, it's a mainly a partnership between the Intrepid Museum and New York University's Ability Project. Um, and we came together in 2018 to put together a proposal for the Institute for Museum and Library Services in order to secure funding for a multi-year project in which we would work with historic sites and disability advocates to develop kind of workable tools for historic sites, including those with very small budgets or low or small staff, um, to be able to improve their accessibility in their interpretation. So not just thinking about the basics of getting into the space, but actually the way that we um, convey information, the way that we engage visitors and doing so in an accessible way. And so we started by developing this proposal, bringing on other partners such as Access Smithsonian and the National Trust for Historic Preservation um, to advise on the project as well. And so we put together this grant and in fall of 2019, we were able to kick off the project, um, which began with recruiting the historic sites as well as the disability advocates uh, so that we could have a convening in late 2019, I think it was December 2019, to kick off the project. And so we were looking for a mix of historic sites and houses, um, small ones, a little bit bigger ones, ones that were part of kind of larger organizations or fully independent, and tried to have kind of a, a spread across the country. Um, and for the disability advocates, we were thinking about folks with a range of backgrounds and experiences, different disabilities, different types of experiences in museums to bring those perspectives together. And so we came together for our initial convening in December 2019, um, which was a productive meeting and one that really kind of brought to light some of the different goals and perspectives that people were bringing to the project. Uh, so then we were able to then start um, kind of the initial brainstorming and prototyping process, which is where NYU Ability Project brought together some of their students um, to meet with the historic sites and the advocates to develop some initial prototypes, um, which we were also doing at the museum with our exhibits team here. Um, as you can imagine, that was taking place in winter of 2020. So uh, the project was uh, definitely impacted by the pandemic closures um, as uh, NYU moved to virtual and as you know, the museum's 
our museum closed. Many, most of the other historic sites, if not all of them, also closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we continued with some of that initial prototyping, um, but it was also put on hold a little bit. Um, we use that as an opportunity to focus on some of our digital projects, including actually working on a uh, accessible web mobile guide for the museum that we could also model for the other historic sites later on. Um, And then later on, we were able to pick back up on the prototyping the next semester of of school and kind of continue that further and then open up um, an exhibit at the museum, Making History Accessible, uh, where we actually displayed some of the prototypes that were developed by the students, as well as by the Intrepid Museum's exhibits team. Uh, We had that open over the summer of 2021. And during that time, we also brought in other user experts that we recruited um, to come in. Um, We did observations and interviews and surveys um, to get a sense of how people were actually using the um, the, the exhibit interactives that we had developed. Um, and then we used that. Uh, we came together for another convening that was a hybrid convening where um, some of the sites were able to come and see the installations. Some of the advocates who hadn't seen them were able to come and check them out. Um, and then that spring of 2022, the historic sites then developed their own prototypes um, based on what we had done here. And they set up, created their own examples of them, you know, trying to find vendors or partners um, to help develop some of those, depending on the project that they were doing. They did some of their own user testing um, throughout the spring and summer and fall. And um, yeah, so we've, we're then able to kind of share some of that feedback. And out of that, we started drafting our our toolkit, um, which went through several rounds of writing and review from the different participants in the project. Um, and Lauren really took a lead on writing that that initial draft, which was really great. So uh, we're excited to have it now out in the world. It is now online mm. and open for distribution. And so we're looking forward to hearing about how others are, are using that as well. So Charlotte, for somebody who's like um, inter- interpretive services, what? Um, <laughs> tell me prior to winter of 2019 um tell me about like your day-to-day in in your role at the intrepid museum what do you walk through the doors of the museum most sort of dialed into so my position is based in the education department and so a lot of the focus especially early on as we developed our access initiative was around programs, um, developing specialized programs for people with disabilities. So for example, um, developing verbal description and touch tours for visitors who are blind or early morning openings for children with autism and their families and other types of specialized programs, um, working with special education classes, self-contained classes, as well as inclusive classes that come to the museum to make those field trips more uh, inclusive and accessible for them as well. Make Make sure that we are meeting their learning goals, whether they're academic or social emotional. We also developed a a specialized camp um, for kids with disabilities, a maker camp. uh, And we do also adult programs and veteran programming as well. So kind of early on, it was very much kind of programmatic thinking, these specialized programs, and then moving more toward also working with the rest of our education team and our public programs team to start building in those best practices into into our larger programs. So trying to build in to make sure that all of our programming is inclusive so that people have a choice when they're coming to the museum to have a really specialized experience with a lot of supports if that's what they're looking for, or to be able to come to any program and know that they're, they have that support, that they have trained staff. And so there's a lot of, I spend a lot of time uh, doing training, not just in education, but across the museum. Um, and increasingly over the past few years, there's been more of a focus of actually building in accessibility into all of our, um, into the entire museum. So that means I do work with our exhibits team, um, you know, being part of that review process and development process of new exhibits, um, 
also working with advisors that we have. We have an autism advisory council that my team has um, that we've had for a number of years now, and also bringing in other advisors and working with others um, mm-hmm. to bring in that expertise. So it's thinking about programs within education, but also much more increasingly across the entire museum with our exhibits, our design of the whole space. You know, we're in the process of a website redesign. So it was part of that process of bringing in advisors to work on that project. Um, and so it's it's trying to think more holistically at this point throughout the entire museum. So definitely based in education, um, but thinking more widely as well. Mm. And I have a great team uh, here of, of other uh, on the access team here of other educators working on this, which has been really great. Amazing. Um, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about how you got into this work? And um, with respect to the toolkit, just in a in in brief, what do you feel like the ideal outcome is for you having this toolkit out there um, and accessible? Yeah, so I can start with a little bit of how I got into this work in the first place. So I actually started out doing more visual design. So I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and I learned more like traditional and fine art, um, art history um, methods, practices. And I graduated and worked as an art director for over 10 years um, at different agencies working on brands um, and did that for a while. And I really, really wanted to shift from working on brands to working with the user. So I went back to the only place I knew to do that, which is at NYU's uh, interactive telecommunications program. Like lovingly known as ITP. It's this strange little program started in the 1970s by this woman named Red Burns, who wondered what would happen if you embedded an engineering program within an art program. So it's within Tisch. So one of the first um, classes I took was on accessibility design, and I completely fell in love with it and ended up focusing on uh, accessibility design for my entire two years of grad school. Um, And what happened was I ended up kind of expanding my digital or design practice really to include more sensory modalities. Um, You know, this, I really wanted to increase access for assistive tech users who learn best through other sensory modalities, whether that's touch or sight um, and audio. So really it was about expansion for me. And now I do this work 100% of my time. Mm. And then to your second question, which is like, what would the ideal outcome be um, to have the toolkit out there? So similarly, I would really like to see museums expand beyond what we refer to as like an ocular centric world, right? Everything is visual. Um, We live in a visual society and I want people to start thinking about how people truly perceive the world around them. Um, we have a lot of bias in how we um, assume other people perceive information. Um, some people perceive better through touch. Um, Charlotte mentioned touch tours, right? Some perceive better through hearing. Um, Charlotte also mentioned verbal description tours. Um, some perceive better through smell or taste. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's very wide, it's a wide range. And I think the main kind of takeaway here is not everything is about sight. And when you design for all of these sensory modalities, you invite more people into those museum experiences. Mm. So I had a question about that, which is how, for a project like this, is it human-centered in the sense that you begin by designing for who specifically is walking through the door? Or are you going from some like generalized sense of, how many people are coming through as being hearing dominant or smell dominant? How do you, where do you start? Yeah. So I think one, one word that Charlotte mentioned earlier that really stuck out to me was this idea of giving people choices. And I think that's really what multi-sensory design is about. It's not designing for one. It's about providing a bunch of different options so people can choose what works for them. Um, I think people understand their needs and understand what their preferences are. And so it's our job to kind of provide them with as many of these options as we can. Charlotte, 
how uh, how did you get into this work? When I graduated from college, I knew that I wanted to work in museum education. I'd had a campus job um, as a in one of the campus art, uh, campus art museums in the education office, um, and so I knew that I wanted to work in informal education in museums. And it was through some of those early jobs. Um, I started off working part time at a couple of museums, which is a pretty common entry point mm. uh, for museum educators, kind of freelancing in a couple of places. And it was in doing that work that I really, you know, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved the way that we could connect with learners outside of the classroom. Um, But I also saw that there were limitations in what I was able to do. I didn't necessarily have the tools to support all the people who were coming through the museums I was at who wanted to engage with it, but just didn't, it just, there just wasn't something for them. Mm. Um, The, you know, the communication was limited. It was only available in certain ways um, or, you know, everything was, you know, separated physically in some way, you know, there, it depended on on the group. And so that was something I was really interested in, in being stronger at as a practitioner, um, as a museum educator. And then also um, thinking that, you know, at some point, if I got into a position where I could have more influence on an institution itself, kind of be able to um, reshape some of the way that we approach that in a, in a museum. So, um, I did go to, I went to grad school for museum education down in DC, um, where I did some uh, placement with a special education teacher in a school, in addition to then doing a placement in a museum and, and in addition to the coursework. And when I came back to New York after that, um, I was again freelancing at a few places and I had been interested in working at the Intrepid Museum. I started out part-time because I knew that they were strong in in access programming, hmm. in accessibility. And so um I didn't start out in that role, but when a full-time position with the access team opened up, I applied for it and and have been with the access team since, and I'm now in this position. Um, and so as it's grown over time, I've really enjoyed having the opportunity not only to shape our programming and the types of family and school programs and, and camp programs that we offer here, but also to work with my colleagues across the museum and with other advisors and advocates to really think more clearly about how we can improve the interpretation at the museum so that it's accessible to more people. Mm-hmm. Like Lauren was saying, by making it more accessible it's and giving people more choices in how to engage with it, that's going to make it a stronger story. We have such amazing stories here. You know, Intrepid, just as a little bit of background, was a former the main part of the museum is the aircraft carrier. We're on a former aircraft carrier. I'm in it right now in my office um, that served from 1943 until 1974. Um, We also have a submarine, uh, the Growler. We have a Concorde. We have a space shuttle Enterprise. We have all these great things and we have such rich stories. You know, over 50,000 people served on Intrepid during its service. Mm. Um, And in order to, you know, we have all these great stories, but it's almost like, what's the point if people aren't able to to access that, aren't able to understand that, aren't able to kind of delve into the topics that they're interested in and get those those rich stories um, or be introduced to new ideas or new scientific concepts, whatever it might be. Um, and so it's been really exciting to to bring that out more and to have a project like this, which is working with other sites to try to make this something that people at other sites can see as being feasible for them, that they have this opportunity to reach people in new ways and engage them in new ways and bring out stories they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Um, And so that's, that's something that I'm really excited about. It's also, it's fun. It's fun to have to kind of think creatively about turning an aircraft carrier that was really not built with accessibility in mind. That was not the point, you know, we were entering world war II. That's not what the Navy was thinking about when this was under construction. Um, And so, you know, now we are a museum. We've been a museum since 1982. We have a a different mission, right? We have to, we are a place of public accommodation. And so we have different responsibilities. And so there are some things that we are able to change. There are some things we're not able to physically change about the space. And so, you know, we have to be creative about that. And I think that creativity is, is a lot of fun having that opportunity to, to do that. Yeah. Tell, tell me about the scale of the issue. Who are museum audiences and who do we want them to be? You know, when you think about museums, you think about museums and think about the audiences. So in this project, we were thinking about historic sites and historic houses because, that is the largest subsection of types of museums in the country. I think about 45% of all museums are historic houses, historic sites, historical societies. Um, 
you know, we have the kind of the constant question for museums in general is who are our audiences and are we actually reaching our communities? You know, there's this traditional idea of a museum visitor as kind of an older white person who's going to the museum in their free time. You know, they're retired. They have time to go around. Um, but we want to make sure, and I think, you know, many museums now understand that in order for us to have purpose, have meaning, it is about reaching out to those wider communities. Mm. And so, you know, in New York City, it's kind of an interesting situation because we have, you know, over 8 million people live in the city. We also have a lot of people who travel here from all over the world. And so, you know, we are thinking about local visitors, hyper-local communities, people in our neighborhood, people in the five boroughs, in the kind of surrounding areas. Uh, but we're also thinking about international visitors who are coming, not, you know, people from other parts of the country. Um, and, you know, there is a push in New York City to consider accessibility as a part of, of tourism, which I think is, is really exciting, um, recognizing that people also want to be able to travel and come in. Um, but, you know, within my work, I am thinking more locally most of the time. Um, but that being said, you know, people with disabilities, that represents, you know, about 25% of the population at any time. Anyone can become disabled at any point in their life. It's something that changes. Um, you know, families are mixed groups, right? You might have a family with people who are non-disabled as well as people with disabilities. Um, disabilities can evolve over time. And so if we are not designing our spaces, not designing our programming, not designing our communication or outreach for this wider group, for people with disabilities in mind, and not including them in that process, then we're excluding a large part of the population. Um, I think we have a statistic that in like, according in 2015, only 7% of museum visitors, you know, of people with disabilities were visiting museums. Um, so that's a really small portion um, that's actually coming to museums. Um, and, you know, something that we talk a lot about is that it's not just about opening your doors, it needs to be an active invitation, mm. and it needs to have that follow through. So, you know, if you're going to have special hours, if you're going to have you know, additional resources or something, it's making sure that then that it's, you're actually following through on that and that you are actually meeting what people are interested in, what they want, what they need. So, um, yeah, so it's a, it's definitely, it's definitely a big issue. We want people to feel like they are welcomed in, in the museum. Yeah. From a design perspective, Lauren, as you came into spaces like museums for maybe the first time with kind of an accessible design lens, what are some of the habits that you realized are kind of part of the museum experience um, that you realize, oh, wow, this is a juicy space for innovation and like next level thinking about how the design of these experiences work? Yeah, so I think one thing we was very clear to us and I think clear to a lot of other folks working in this space, too, is a lot of things are roped off or behind glass or Sometimes they're ne next to a sign that says, do not touch. Um, and I think that it automatically provides a lot of multisensory access barriers, um, especially if you're, you're looking at visitors who learn best through touch. Maybe your visitors are blind or low vision. Um, there's a lot of things that are out of reach um, for those visitors. And I think another thing that we were noticing, um, we recently published a new journal article on this, is uh, touch objects and touch tour design um, which I'm very interested in, we were finding that a lot of museums that I interviewed um, had limitations when it came to designing these touch objects for um, for blind and low vision visitors, um, whether it was through uh, using an intern for the summer or um, arts and crafts supplies, um, things tended to break or were not created in a, in a durable way. Um, and then these objects were kind of passed around as a way to bring these artifacts out behind glass when mm. these visitors were paying the same entry price, but maybe touching something that was breaking or was inequitable or, or not thoughtfully designed and, and also lacked design guidelines. There really aren't any formal design guidelines behind um, these types of, uh, of uh, accommodations that museums are providing. And I think the Intrepid is doing such a great job in like leading this space and showing what a touch tour should look like, um, how it should be thoughtfully designed. 
And so I think there's just a huge um, gap in this space to innovate and help and support these museum practitioners who maybe don't have an accessibility expert on their team. Maybe their team is small, they don't have the time and just helping them start to create more equitable experiences for people with disabilities at their museums. We are currently working on a touch object decision tree, which we're hoping to get out to the public soon, where we're gonna give kind of practitioners and museums the, the information they need to start um, focusing their time and efforts and budget on touch objects that actually need to be created. Mm. So yeah, this really all just comes from museums and preservation and how a lot of folks really learn best through touch and they're unable to do that in a lot of museum spaces. Um, now that I, I tell me if this is a uh, fair analog, now that I know a little bit about your background, it feels in part like what maybe part of your wish for working on something like the toolkit is that as if you're working on brand design, for example, you know, you have a style guide for the brand that helps you scale a set of themes or ideas in ways that make the experience of the brand you know more universal um is is that the idea of the toolkit in part like is that a fair analog to say that this in, in part is a thing we can hand off to other museums to say here are the ways to put these things together in such a way that it builds on um, practices that we've seen be effective yeah, I think I think one thing what we can do is report on our own experiences. So, so throughout this three or four year grant, we can report, look, these are the things that we did. These are the projects that we started. These are the places we worked with. And this is what we learned. Mm. And then we can make recommendations based off of those learnings. So I, I it's not um, a hard and fast set of rules or guidelines, but it is, look, I think we can all learn from what we went through. And I think that can help kind of grow these access programs in other museums. Yeah. I'll just please jump in to say that um, I think that the case studies that are in the the toolkit uh, really help kind of reinforce that. Um, there are some great guidelines out there. You know, the Smithsonian has their guidelines for accessible exhibition design, which are a great resource, and that's one of the things that we cite in the toolkit. Um, but they can also often feel daunting without that additional context, without um, the suggestions of how to actually reach out to advisors, for example. That was one of the questions that came up early on um, in our kind of convenings was about, well, how do I find advisors? How do I find disabled user mm -hmm. experts to come into my museum? And so that's something that we wanted to include in the toolkit because that was a question that came up, especially for those sites that have very few staff members, if, if any. So that was something that we wanted to be able to address, have those kind of practical um, considerations as well, and think about some of those those main uh, barriers that people might face, like Lauren mentioned, having things behind glass, for example, um, and out of touch, or having areas of your museum that are entirely inaccessible, that you know are not safe for visitors to enter at all. Yeah. Um, and so kind of thinking of considerations like that, um, you know, I know some of our advisors, um, one one of our advisors, I know, I think it was Emily Ladau, who's a really wonderful advocate, um, but she made the, the point of, you know, how many historic sites has she shown up to where, she, you know, she pays for admission and then they're like, here, go into this room and watch this video, mm. watch the video tour while everyone else goes through the museum. And it's knowing that that's not an equitable experience. That's not the reason for someone to come to your site. Like you can watch a video at home. Um, so if you're going right. to make those stories meaningful in other ways, you have to get a little bit more creative and how you do that. It's not just passing around the same chamber pot that every historic <laughs> site apparently has, <laughs> um, which, or which candlestick. is another thing that our <laughs> advisors cited. Uh, I remember, um, so I grew up in New Jersey. I remember um, one of the favorite spots um, for school groups was uh, Jockey Hollow, which had um, in, in Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, there was a little bit of a living history museum there. and um, But coincidentally, there were, uh, we passed around a chamber pot. So when you said that, I was like, oh, man. That's a real thing. Like, I, I yeah. interviewed, I interviewed uh, blind and low vision museum accessibility experts who were like, one of them, I think the quote was like, 
I don't want to see another goddamn candlestick <laughs> when I go to these. So there's these repro houses that create these reproductions right. of things within an historic uh, house or site. Yeah. And they're all passing around the same candlestick repro. So they're like, oh, wow. I'm paying to go here. I'm paying to go here. And I'm touching the same thing, oh, which was so interesting to me. Um, so apparently this is a thing. <laughs> and this is, you know, something that we've talked about, Lauren, is that if you're including a touch experience or if you're including a smell experience, there needs to be purpose behind it, right? Like, what is the story that you're that you're trying to tell? What is the, what are you trying to communicate? You know, because if that's one of the barriers that we're thinking about is around maybe written communication or audio communication. So what is the story that we are telling through that touch experience or through that smell experience? What is the purpose there? Why this object? What kind of detail does it need to have? And so that's why, you know, with the toolkit, we weren't just thinking about just making your site accessible. It's about making the interpretation, making the storytelling, um, making that experience accessible. So I think that's, you know, you know, people know what a candlestick feels like. We don't, we don't, that's not the, the thing that we're trying to emphasize. So. Right. Yeah. We, one of the questions we asked was like, is this something that you can touch in your home already? Because if not, don't make a touch object mm. of that. <laughs> make something that somebody can't touch in their own daily lives. Make, make it special. Yeah. Let's talk instead about um, great examples. So uh, describe one or two examples you personally are kind of go-tos for you where you feel like interpretive design really elegantly hit all of the dimensions it should when it comes to accessibility. Maybe Charlie, you can go first and then Lauren follow. I mean, I think there are a lot of great examples. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind is that it's always a work in progress. And so it's it's always kind of revisiting what we have and and building from there. So I'll have an example from my museum and then I'll think and I'll also share some from outside mm -hmm. of our, my own museum. Uh, but one of the things that I'm excited about here is we have an exhibition open now called On the Mend, Restoring Intrepid Sick Bay, uh, because we are in the process of trying to restore our sick bay, which is one of the spaces that is currently not accessible to anyone, mm. um, but that we will be opening to the public um, hopefully in the next several years. We just received um, an NEH grant uh, to help with that process, which we're excited about. Uh, but this exhibition is kind of telling the story a little bit of, of the historic space of sick bay, but it's also about the process of opening up the exhibit um, and kind of what that process of discovery and research and trying to kind of piece together this story. Um, and so within that exhibit, we were able to bring in some of the lessons that we learned from the, from the process of making the toolkit from this uh, Making History Accessible project. So, you know, we were able to include um, some of the 3D scans that we made of the space as a kiosk outside so that people can explore some of that and actually see really detailed images of the space while it's not yet open and move through that. So kind of one of those technological approaches. We also have a tactile map of the space that's out in the open available for anyone um, that includes raised lines and Braille and um kind of written out text of what those spaces are so that it can be an introduction for anyone. Um, and one of the things we were really careful of um, based on the feedback that we had throughout the process was making sure with our vendor that we were really being careful about the Braille that we were using mm. um, because I've heard feedback from, you know, blind vision museum visitors who read Braille who have been really disappointed to get to a place that promised Braille. And it turned out that it was way too big or too small or worn out. Um, so kind of building that in, but then within the exhibit itself, including um, a tray of surgical supplies that people can touch mm. um, because that is a little unusual where right? we don't all have, um, sutures or whatever in our homes, um, but including that touch experience in that um, and that it's available at all times, we were able to figure out a way to secure down those materials. Uh, we also have audio description of some of the sailor art that's on display in there so that anyone can listen, um, use a QR code or go to the site and listen to the audio description of that. We have the labels available on the walls in a large print guide and also available online so that someone who maybe uses a screen reader can listen to that or read it that way. Yeah. And so we were just trying to be thoughtful about bringing in some of those lessons into this exhibit here, and that will hopefully then inform 
uh, the actual space as we prepare to open it in the future. Nice. So that's just something I'm excited about here. Um, I think our exhibits team is super creative. We had an exhibit a few years ago about cakes in the Navy, um, like birthday cake, all sorts of cake. Mm. Um, and that one, that one of the things I thought that was really fun was just kind of in thinking about the scale of creating things is that they were able to integrate um, the trays that they would make the cakes on, you know, to serve 3000 people and kind of make this beautiful archway out of it to show the scale of that, mm. but also making it kind of this inviting space to enter. And they also made a full-sized reproduction of one of the cakes, which we still have on display, even though we no longer have the exhibit, but is a big hit with visitors. Um, and it's great to have on touch tours as well, because it really conveys like, this is what it means to have 3000 people on this ship. It means a lot of cake. Right. Um, and so that's something I'm really excited that I'm excited about here outside out in the world. Um, there's some great examples. Um, you know, I'll be going to Denver, uh, later this later in May. And I was thinking about, uh, last time I was there and going to history, Colorado, mm. um, their center in, in Denver, and they have, um, an ex an exhibition about kind of different ex lived experiences in Colorado. And one of the ones that I found really moving is that they have, they recreated, I think a cabin, uh, that someone would have lived in, in a Japanese internment camp. And, they made note that they had made it a little bit wider so that someone in a wheelchair could enter. Mm. But they made clear, like, we made this, that it is accessible, but it would have been a little bit smaller. So they valued the physical accessibility of the space, but also made clear that they had made a change that would might affect the way that you experience that. Nice. Um, and they had audio recordings of oral histories. They also had them written out so you could listen to them or you could read them. Um, it's kind of like letters that were on the table and you could kind of go through that space and kind of experience being in um, this 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 space and kind of get that sense through the storytelling that was taking in taking place in there, but also with the actual design of it. Um, so that was just one that I was thinking of that I found really moving um, recently. Um, there's some really great um, kind of other experiments happening in other spaces. I'm excited about some of the partner sites and the things that they did. Um, I think the historic stove that they recreated at um, Louisiana State Museum is really exciting. Mm. Hope to see that in person uh, one day down in New Orleans as well. Um, but I'll let Lauren share as yeah, well. Yeah, Lauren, what are, what are some of your favorites? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorites are when they are disability-led, right? Like we talk about creating teams where there's disability representation within the team, but I really favor when the projects are actually led by people with disabilities. I think it's super critical because instead of having like a bunch of non-disabled people designing for people with disabilities mm -hmm. um, and potentially like embedding some ableism into their design work, you have folks with lived experience driving the design work. Mm. And so there's a, an inclusive design firm called Prime Access Consulting that I interviewed. Um, and their firm is led by a blind designer. Um, and they worked with the Andy Warhol Museum. Mm. And they did a really fantastic job of incorporating touch into their galleries. So they had tactile reliefs on kiosks beneath the artworks on the wall. So visitors can walk up and touch them while also hearing an audio description as well to help guide them through that tactile experience. Mm. And so one of the reasons I love this so much is that it made accessibility and disability so much more visible to visitors. And it also educated them about accessibility in the process. So they just are like, you know, above and beyond, I think, in terms of an example of someone doing it well. Brilliant. We're uh, running low on time. So I just want to ask you maybe one more question specifically about the high tech versus low tech nature of exhibits and translation services. And I think that there are a lot of folks, obviously everywhere in, in, in every uh, corner, people are talking about um, things like VR and uh, haptics are, um, are a big, a big conversation. And now AI obviously is having uh, this, this uh, sort of surge in the media and, I wonder just to talk a little bit about um, high and low tech and what feels um, maybe like it. I'm, I'm interested in peeling away like the stuff that people find 
super exciting. Like, oh my gosh, a VR experience of the intrepid, amazing um, versus, and, and maybe it is amazing, but um, versus things that you feel are where the technology is, uh, is coming into the discipline in ways that really matter. Let's talk about VR for a second. Um, because, you know, I think VR is a really great example of when one thing is accessible to one person, it can be completely inaccessible to another. So, for example, like somebody with a physical disability might prefer VR to visit an area of the museum that is inaccessible to them. Yeah. Charlotte talked about like doorway width and, and stairs and things like that. Um, but on the other side of that, the majority of VR experiences are actually inaccessible to screen reader users or blind and low vision users. Um, so menu items in the in the interface aren't labeled correctly for screen reader users and are, sometimes can be impossible to navigate. Mm. And I think a lot of that really comes from non-disabled designers and engineers creating these experiences and not having that, you know, disabled designers on the team to help them remove those access barriers and kind of mitigate those biases. And then I think when you were talking about high and low tech um, and, you know, a good example and, and maybe a bad example, um, I think for me, low tech, I am completely obsessed with tactile graphics. Uh, I think because they're so, they're relatively low tech, um, they can be made with more fancy equipment, but they can also be made with just like a pen and paper and a cutting board. We have run the gamut in terms of ways of producing uh, tactile graphics. You can use hot glue. You mm. can use puppy paint. There's so many ways. And what's also great about them is that there's a shallow learning curve. Um, if folks have access to the right training material, which is something that, um, you know, I think the Intrepid does so well and I've been working on uh, too. And the importance of, of tactile graphics is that they provide this spatial information in a way that like a verbal description cannot. And so I know sometimes museums, if they don't hand around a replica, they might hand around a tactile graphic. Um, so I love them as a great kind of low-fi mm -hmm. um, solution. I think the when you're talking about high fidelity um, or high tech, we we Right now, everybody is talking about AI, which is great. Um, I think we can't rely on one solution to fix everything because there's always going to be challenges with everything that any solution that we're choosing. Sure. Um, AI, for instance, is really, really great at scaling accessibility, um, like alt text or image descriptions, for, for instance, we can really kind of scale up that instance of alt text and image description on the web. Um, but it's just so untrustworthy and mm. so unreliable. And if it gets an image description wrong, like somebody's race or their gender or their disability identity, it can actually be really harmful. Mm -hmm. And so I think people naturally kind of want to lean on it to right. solve the huge accessibility gap. In fact, when I present uh, accessibility design solutions, it's the first thing I get is like, what about AI? <laughs> But, but I think we really need to be thinking about putting the same time and effort into accessibility design that we put into creating anything. Right. And that's really where I'm trying to kind of push the work a little bit. Yep, brilliant. Go ahead, Charles. Yeah, and I'll, yeah, I, I second uh, what Lauren has been saying. Um, I, I think both low and high tech approaches have, have their place, have their role. Um, I think, again, goes back to making sure that what you're providing um, is, you know, providing choice and how people engage and that it's adding meaning. So it's, you know, 3D printing something because it has a purpose, because you're not able to do that in another way, because that is the way that you can recreate that object that you wouldn't be able to create otherwise, because it's, there aren't ready-made models available. Um, there aren't other, you know, copies of something that you can handle. And so that's like a really great solution potentially for that. Um, you know, one of the things you emphasize in the toolkit is is the prototyping process. So starting potentially with that low tech approach, you know, using the the cardboard and layering it to create that tactile version of that portrait. But then, you know, maybe that is then the endpoint. Maybe that is what you need, and then getting great feedback. But it might also be the launching point. You know, once you do get a little bit more funding to create something um, that uses a little bit more 
um, advanced technology or, or brings in another partner who maybe has some more expertise in creating something that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And you can leverage that prototype to maybe help secure some of that funding to be able to do that. Um, likewise, with, with technological solutions, you know, we talk a little bit about creating, um, you know, mobile websites that can be a guide. And so we tried to do something really basic in WordPress that is something that someone can do without having um, a lot of, you know, technological yeah. skill, for example, but have some of those best practices there. Um, the interesting thing with VR is, I'll say we are actually starting to embark on a process uh, with VR um, related to our engine room, which is is not open to the public and never will be for a number of reasons. Um, but that is definitely something that mm. we are thinking a lot about and encountering as we're kind of determining our vendors and things like that is you know, finding people who are, who understand that we need to bring people into the process early on, um, you know, disabled uh, user experts who can bring in that experience early on in the process and throughout um, and to think beyond just kind of those visual experiences or when we're moving, if you're wearing a headset and you're moving around, what types of movements are you are needed to control that? What are some alternative ways of controlling that if you're not able to turn your head, for example, yeah. um, or if you can't hold the weight of a headset? So there's a lot of different um, approaches, and I think they all can really complement and supplement each other really well. Um, but one of the things that I think many sites kind of start off in is just where to start and just, you know, knowing that you don't need to do everything at the beginning. You don't need to start with everything, um, but you need to start somewhere. And so it's just thinking about what what is within our reach at this moment. You know, is there, a, you know, I think one of our sites realized that they had like a, a school for kids who are blind that was like next door. Mm -hmm. So I was like, hey, maybe this is an audience that we start off thinking a lot about. Maybe we work with them to start off because they're already here. Um, and we can build that relationship. So it's a lot about building those relationships to figure out what that right approach is. But there are, you know, opportunities for solutions at all different budget levels and skill levels and really thinking about, you know, who can you work with that's around you to to determine those and and go from there. Great. Yeah, I was going to say I was going to say one quick quote, which mm -hmm. I love, which is uh, Meryl Evans, who's a wonderful um, deaf disability advocate. She likes to say progress over perfection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's nice to think about, especially for folks that are ramping up their accessibility capabilities, like start with those easy wins and build as you go. It's, you know, it's not going to be perfect when you initially start. It's going to take time. Nice. One place they can now start is the toolkit. Tell people yes. where they can find it. Great. Yes, we have it on our website. If you go to intrepidmuseum.org slash access, uh, we have it available as both a PDF and a Word document. Um, so whatever format works better for you, um, you can find it there, intrepidmuseum.org slash access. Terrific. And um, and Lauren, uh, where, where should people find the work that you're doing with uh, with NYU Ability and um, and some of your other work? Yeah, so you can go to ability.nyu.edu, and that's our site with all of our recent projects and our team and the classes that we offer students. So, um, yeah, that's it's happy to share the Ability Project. It's a great space. Awesome. Lauren, Charlotte, thank you so much for joining, and thank you for all your work on the toolkit. I'm really excited to share it. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.